Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington. And with me here today is our special guest, a dear friend of ours, Jay Balan, the Security Research Director for Bitdefender. Jay, I'm psyched to have you here. Thanks for joining. Hey, Ted. Hey, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. Jay, you've been a really great friend to uh, not just those of us at ISE, but at IoT Village. You've, been a, you've helped Bitdefender become a sponsor of IoT Village for a while. You've spoken many, many times at different things that we've done. You and I have stood on stages together and uh, ranted about the nonsense that we see out in the world. So I'm really, really excited to just get a chance to chat with you again. Well, that's good. Let's do it. So let's talk about security research. I want to maybe start with an area that is... Something that definitely bothers me and I believe bothers you as well, which is the the challenges that we sometimes face in the responsible disclosure process. And you publish a lot of research. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this challenge that you were outlining to me when we were speaking recently about how difficult it can sometimes be for a researcher to actually submit research to an afflicted company. So maybe you could talk about what the problem is and then we can dig into how do we solve that problem. So long story short, uh, many of the companies that we talk to don't have a security contact. Uh, let's say that we have we found this critical vulnerability affecting, and not, I'm not even exaggerating here, like 10 million people, right? So there's this product that's in the homes of 10 million people, and there's this like remote command execution or unauthorized access that can enable an attacker in a not difficult way, actually. They just have to know where to look to kind of have a full control over the devices in like 10 million the homes of 10 million people. It's a pretty big deal. Obviously, it's like a huge deal. So at that point, we start to reach out to the vendor and they don't have a security contact. And at that point, we start going through additional channels. We go to Twitter, we go to LinkedIn. We ask friends if they know anybody that works there. You know, At some point, we contacted the, the, the retail stores that were selling that, that company's product. This is true. And we had some friends that were managing those retail stores and asked, okay, you guys are shipping this guy's product. Can you put us in contact with them? And eventually we get through, but it, it, in one case, actually it took a, a year and a half just to establish that first connection and then another year to get them to, to build the fix and ship it and you know, make sure that all the devices are patched. So all in all, it took us like two years and a half before we could publish our research. And arguably, we could have published earlier the, you know, there's no law about it, but commonly, you know, the, the standard in, in, the, in the responsible disclosure is pretty much 60 days or let's say 90 days, you know. But we kind of stood on that one because it was pretty, pretty dangerous. 
So yeah, that's 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 a thing that we unfortunately encountered in the vast majority of the companies that we talk to. Only a handful, like the big names, the big names, they answer quickly. But if it's some you know brand that's slightly cheaper, although insanely popular, you know, like again, a lot of people use them, they don't really answer that 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 quick. If or if it if it were up to me, I would make that this very small recommendation. You should have if you if you touch people's data, if you can influence people's lives in any way, honestly, I wouldn't let you operate without a security contact man 24-7 on your website. It's a simple measure that can be taken, and it's not that difficult to implement for companies. In your view, is this as simple as having a point of contact, or does this mean that every company needs to employ a full-time employee who handles the security communication? I mean, that initial contact, I think it's 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 a huge step forward in essentially, and I know it's Silicon Valley and whatnot, literally making the world a safer place because we can guide them. Maybe they don't have the, many of them actually don't have the technical expertise or the security expertise to kind of build security into their product. And we can help them. We can tell them, okay, this is how you can do it. And this is, you know, what you can do next. Maybe you don't have a security team. Many of them don't, by the way. And that's fine. Get one. So our first advice is, okay, you don't have a security team? Sure, get one. These are kind of the prices that you should be looking at. Maybe these are the companies that you can look at. It's not for advertising or services. God forbid, no. We actually, in in 99% of the cases, we refuse to continue working on a money-based level with any of the companies, but we are more than happy to provide them with guidance about what to do next. So I definitely think that that initial first contact and having them answer and continue answering our emails and, and being open to communication more than other things is, is more important than anything. Because again, we cannot expect companies to all of them have the security expertise that you know security researchers have. Uh, we cannot expect all companies to have a proper security team, but they should be at least open to communication and you know enable us, help us, help you, you know? Got it. When you, when you say get a security team, are you saying companies should hire one in-house or they should hire a consulting company or some sort of external organization? I mean, both work. Many, uh, I've seen as, as a practice, many small companies outsource their security. And that's fine. They get a SOC and then they get a, some security consultancy team that, you know, reviews their architecture, reviews their code. Uh, they do like periodic two times a year pen tests. And that's fine. Also, there's a small catch with that because I've seen a situation when some guys had, again, a, a, a glaring vulnerability. Uh, in order to be able to interact with the devices of one of the customers, you needed to know something called a device ID. Our device ID was 401211. So then, then we, we thought, okay, if, if that's all you need, what happens with maybe are they uh, you know uninspired enough to, to make the sequen- sequential, you know? And unfortunately, they were. So the next customer was 401213 and then 214. And, and so a, a, a glaring architectural problem. And when I talked to their director of product, he told me that, well, that's strange because we hired the company, we paid them like $60,000 to do a security review of our products. And I was like, what the hell? I mean, you pay them $60,000 and they, they miss something as obvious as predictable IDs. And I mean, anybody, a baby can definitely see that after 401211, 401213 follows and then so on and so forth. 
So you also have to be careful with, you know, who, who you pick as that security provider, as that company that does security evaluation. So I think references are the best way to go. And also you, you can look at the blog of that company, see if they publish any security papers, see if they publish anything at DEFCON, Black Hat, you know, RSA, see if they have any kind of technical publications about research that they've done in the past. I think that's a, that's a good metric, in my opinion, to kind of see if that company is worth anything in terms of the, the value that they bring to your security. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. And that echoes advice that I've given recently as well. I was delivering a keynote recently and I got this question almost exactly. And it, it, I found out after the fact, you know, the person asked the question sitting in the audience, but then I talked to them after the event and I, I discovered that the reason they were asking this question, which was, you know, how do you know it, that the company you're hiring is legit or not is because they were like that day about to sign the contract with this company and they wanted to, they're like, okay, here's a guy who knows security, like, let's ask him. And I said almost the same things, you know, are they, are they giving talks? Are they writing papers? Are they contributing to the research community? Because not only does that show you what their expertise is, but it shows that they're relevant, shows that they're active now, it shows that they're certainly of an elite nature and not everyone is doing that. So it's good to know that my own bias in this question has been confirmed by what you just said. So as we think about that in terms of how do you, as a, a company is trying to, whether intentionally work with a security company they might hire or not intentionally because they need to receive the input from a security research company, how does a vulnerability disclosure program or even a bug bounty program, how do these fit in? I know you went through the process of building one. Uh, how does that fit into this whole matrix? Wow. So funny thing, actually, that I have been and actually am constantly at both sides of this story. Uh, so in 2015, I, uh, I kickstarted Bitdefender's bug bounty program. And obviously, for many companies, it's difficult to kind of get their minds around. I mean, imagine me talking to our head of PR, telling them, you know, I'm going to let the entire planet hack us. <laughs> right. They're like, what? <laughs> he was scratching his head. No, no, you're, you're insane. This is never going to fly. You're never going to be able to do it. We're never going to allow it. And then I started to kind of present it in a different... I, I just wanted to see his, his face, you know, when I told him that. The point is, you have... Everybody has vulnerabilities in their infrastructure and products. And it's a matter of finding out about them before somebody can actually leverage them and, and exploit them in a malicious way. And allowing the world to hack you, and this is, I cannot stress this enough, for all governments, companies, everybody. If you want your infrastructure to be safe, allow white hats to hack you because they will tell you about it. And if there's a vulnerability, they will tell you about it and you're going to have a chance to fix it. If there's a vulnerability and you don't allow white hats to hack you, then other guys are going to do it and you're not going to know. At least in this way, you don't have 100% control over it. There's always a chance that, that somebody will you know, go rogue, though it has never happened for us. But you have a very high form of control, much better than no control whatsoever, in how people evaluate your security and you know, the vulnerabilities that you have and then tell you about it. And the bug bounty program also offers another incentive, money. If anybody finds a, a big vulnerability, you're going to give them a, a, a certain amount of money and that's going to motivate them to keep working with you and telling you about more vulnerabilities that you have. And let's not forget, your objective is to find those vulnerabilities. Many people, very wrongly, if wrong could be compared to anything, many people wrongly believe that the idea is to have zero vulnerabilities. 
And if you have zero vulnerabilities, you're safe. That's wrong. If you have zero vulnerabilities, it's only because you haven't found them yet. And that means that you have a ton of vulnerabilities that you don't know about, and somebody may be exploiting them this very moment. So with that justification, I was able to kickstart the program, including a public page uh, in a month, getting approvals from everybody. That put me on the other side of that, that situation that we were talking about earlier at the receiving end. So researchers talking to us, telling us about our vulnerabilities. And it was a really good experience. And it showed how awesome the security community is worldwide. It showed how, you know, all the researchers are insanely great people. They will tell you about your vulnerabilities and you can talk to them. Okay, I don't believe that this is like this, you know, and they're going to talk to you. And as long as you talk to them in a human fashion, no auto replies, no canned responses, you know, a human that talks the same language as they do, very important as well. Don't put somebody from support to talk to them, you know, have a highly skilled technical guy. I myself was answering emails in the beginning to make sure that the people feel that somebody at the same level as they are you know, uh, talks to them and understands where they're coming from. So this is, uh, again, very, very important, the way you communicate with the researchers. You want to build a good relationship with them. You want to ask them for, for their opinion. Many times I would say, okay, I've issued a reward of, I don't know, $2,000. Are you happy with that? You know, is this something that you expected? Do you feel that it should be more? You know, and I would ask for their opinion. So this kind of human interaction with the researchers is very, very important. And also, Every time, and if you want to start a bug bounty program, actually, if you, even if you don't, remember one thing. Any communication that you have with a researcher, treat it as, as, it, as if it's going to become public on Twitter at some point. Because in many cases, it will. <laughs> that makes sense. And let's, let's, let's say that a researcher feels that you didn't prioritize his vulnerability properly. They feel it's a P1 critical, and you feel like it's a P4 low. As long as you're sure that you're right, Make sure that that entire communication happens in a way that you would be comfortable with if it gets published. Because if you're right, and if you handle yourself professionally and the way anybody would expect in the security community, the security community will support you. And they will say, if that guy goes public with the conversation, they're going to say to that guy, you're an idiot, okay? You were an idiot and that guy is right. So always treat any conversation that you have with the security community as if that conversation is going to become public on Twitter. And don't be afraid of that. You know, don't be afraid of that. Just make sure that it's a good exercise anyway. I love what I'm hearing because I'm hearing a security researcher talk about how a vulnerability disclosure or bug bounty program should function in terms of the way they relate to researchers. And the I love the spirit of these programs. The spirit is amazing, right? Let's get people all over the world looking at it. Let's get, you know, more eyeballs on a system. Let's get varying degrees of, of skill and expertise looking at it. All these things are great. What I have a problem with with these programs is usually the execution or the implementation of them because we experience all the time. I'm sure you've experienced too. All the time when a researcher goes to submit a vulnerability they've discovered, the program often says, you will not be compensated for this for whatever reasons. And a lot of times those reasons are not valid and you can't talk about it. And so the researcher is left saying, well, if I can't talk about it, I'm not getting paid. What was the outcome of all that effort? I, I need one of those two to happen. And I see that happen all the time. How do we solve that problem? Well, I'm going to take off my corporate hat for a second. All right. I'm going to ask you, Ted, who says you can't talk about it? I mean, yeah, you'd be in violation of the program for sure. But that's the weird thing that the researcher has to decide is now their options are violate the terms of the program 
that is unfair in the way that it was built. So like whether or not those terms should apply matters, but that puts a lot of researchers in a weird place. Like you and I are confident enough to know like, hey, when the program's wrong, like maybe there's another way to do this, but think about the person who's in some other country, they don't know, are they gonna get sued, whatever. So, so here's the thing, in my opinion, it's also like a relationship between two people, you know, because fundamentally you don't want to be working on that program anyway after that. And if, if, if the program is bad, you're not gonna spend time on it. Me as a program owner, I want to attract as many researchers as possible and I want to keep them happy. It's been seven years since I started the program. I've only had two, literally two arguments. I remember both of them. So only two times that the researcher argued with me and said, you know, I don't think it's fair. I think that you're not right. And some of them even went publicly about it. And I said, okay, I don't think these guys, and because their report, they, they were just, there is some this situation. It doesn't happen often, but there is a situation when a researcher wants to kind of have an image and they amplify a vulnerability way out of proportion. There was a guy that was actually allocating not CVEs, but his own CVE system. So he's, he was his own MITRE, you know, and he was allocating numbers for all the vulnerabilities that he would discover because MITRE wouldn't allocate CVEs for him. And he was trying, he would try to kind of blow it out of proportion, go to Twitter, but he wasn't successful about it, you know? So, and I'm like, okay, I can definitely live without, uh, live without your report because he didn't report anything that was of any value to me. And that's for me as a program owner. And as a researcher, you have to, well, essentially, I would recommend just coming, working on our program. <laughs> and, and just, you have definitely a lot of programs to choose from. Thankfully, in the past years, so many companies, more or less because of compliance or for other reasons, have started to have bounties. You definitely have a lot of places to work on. And if a company wants to shoot themselves in the foot by mistreating you, then just go for another company. It's much easier to change companies when you're doing bug bounties than, than to change jobs. Keep doing bug bounties, keep being very good at it, and just remember that you are good. You know, as a researcher, you're awesome. You're insanely awesome. Any company would want to have you working on their program. I would want to have you working on our program. So you definitely have a lot of other better places to go to. And also, I mean, obviously, in all of these cases, for the programs and for the researchers, it's very important that you're right. So I usually find out that I'm, I go to some of my friends that do bug bounty, and they're very successful in it. And, and I ask for their advice, which I encourage anybody to do. I, I always believe that I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. I ask other people for advice, you know? I, I, I talk to my friend, do you think I've mistreated this guy? Do you think he's right? You know, how does this fit in with your standards? And I'm not just one person. I have many people that, many friends that do bug bounties and ask for their opinion. And then based on their opinion, with my judgment, I kind of make a decision on, on, at that point. So I would advise these guys to kind of have, do that as well. So everybody should kind of ask for advice at least in two, three other places. I love it. These insights are great. I especially love this idea, the way you framed it. You helped me think about this a little differently, that these programs are a relationship. And hearing you say that, it got the wheels turning in my mind about where I get frustrated by the execution of these programs is when they're treated not like a relationship. So the best ones are like you described, where there's human interaction, there's communication, both parties are realizing, hey, this is about improving this tech. And where it fails is when one party or the other is treating this not like a relationship. So that's, that's really fascinating. So if I'm, if I'm someone running a program, Maybe that's the research or that's the takeaway I should have here is uh, treat these researchers like someone I'm in a relationship with. Uh, and 
obviously, if it's an abusive relationship, just get yeah. out of dodge. You know? Right, right. There's also one special situation. In that special situation where you find a P1, a, a remote command execution, like a very serious vulnerability that enables you to take over and have fundamental access to all their inner systems, something like really huge, you know, like have like fund access to the entire cloud structure or whatever, you know, something big. And then they blow you off. In that case, it's a little bit tricky. You cannot just walk away as a researcher. Again, I'm taking off my manager of the bug bounty program hat and I'm speaking to the researchers. Many of them get frustrated because some of them actually find serious vulnerabilities that could have been leveraged to to make the company lose millions. For the record, this is how I do my evaluation of the severity of a bug. If this was exploited, how much money would I lose? You know, how much problems would I have? What would be the impact on the business? You know, and this weighs a lot in that in that reward calculation. So if you find a vulnerability that could have you know been leveraged to do a huge impact to that business and you're blown off, that cannot stay like that. I would definitely make that public. And I would, I think that I wouldn't be blamed for it. Nobody would blame me for it because maybe it's something that's relevant to the entire security community. Maybe it's a new attack vector that everybody should know about. Right. It's fascinating when you see how far the relations between researchers and the companies that are being researched, how far the, that relationship has come. I mean, 10 years ago, it was pretty tense. 20 years ago, it was like, you know, researchers got sued. That, that was how companies dealt with researchers. And now these problems are still persisting. But my opinion, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this, my opinion is that it's getting better. Would you agree that the relations are getting better? And if so, what should we do to continue making them better? So, yes, I definitely agree that they're getting better. I think that the reason why they're getting better is that many companies, again, for compliance or because they have these new awesome CISOs, the younger generation of CISOs, you know, that maybe grew up in the security community know how important bug bounties are and how important being open to receiving vulnerabilities is. I think that this is this is an influx of new companies that that open open up to being, you know, to allowing people to do research, allowing people to kind of test them for vulnerabilities. And there's more and more, more and more companies that do that. On on the platforms where we're present, we see a constant addition of new companies that want to be part of that. That's the good part. The bad part unfortunately, is that, in my opinion, not nearly enough, you know? Yeah. Not nearly enough. It's like baby steps, not the proper strides that we need. Yeah. yeah. Definitely not nearly enough. As I was saying, like, eight out of 10 companies that we reach out to with vulnerability reports don't have a security contact. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how, you know, that's where we started the conversation with this thing that seems so straightforward, right? Like, create a security at your domain. Like, create an email address to just email secure and like have someone receive that it doesn't go to a, a dead inbox. And what I'm hearing you say, and I agree with is that even that one little step that a human will receive this, even if that human is like the marketing, pro, who someone receives it and says, well, I should do something with this. That's what we need to see. How, that's the first step, right? Let me ask you something. Would you say that it's too much to ask to make this a rule for operating in the commercial space? I think it would be a great rule. The likelihood that the knuckleheads who make laws make a law like this done right, that's, that's maybe a bigger hoop to jump through. But uh, yeah, I think, I think if we could say, let's wave a magic wand and let's make this simple baseline requirement to just operate a business, like anyone can do this. It's not difficult. It's not, it doesn't cost anything. I would agree with you. Yeah, this would be great. Yeah, I know. So how do we do that? <laughs> how do we how do we make this become a rule? I, each of the talks that I give, 
uh, at any conference from RSA, DEFCON, Derbycon, whatever, I end with this. This is the my this is how I end most of my most of my talks saying, you know, we need to have a law that says you cannot operate a business that that can damage a person's intimate life, right? So like having a device in somebody's house, having a software that interacts with your data uh, without a security contact. You cannot publish an email client that will see people's personal emails without having a security contact. You know, you cannot sell a, a, a vacuum cleaner. Maybe a vacuum cleaner, okay, I can tolerate a vacuum cleaner. There's not much security information in that. But a security camera in my, in my home, a baby monitor, I wouldn't let you sell a baby monitor if you don't have a security contact. Yeah. We had this funny thing happen a few years ago where we published some research. You're probably familiar with the research that we published around routers. And there had been one of the companies that we that was in scope didn't respond to anything. And we, we ran into the same problem that you did, you described before, where it's like, you know, we tried all these different ways to get a contact them. No one responded. Finally, we published the research and they called us that day because they're like, hey, we saw our name in the news. We didn't like that that much. And they, but they called us and they said, we want to change things. And we're like, great, that's the whole goal of security research. We want people to change. And they sent an executive to our office the next day, which was also amazing. We're like, wow, this is really going somewhere. And we find out within about six minutes, the guy's there not to try to change the security of their product, but rather to change our story. He was like, I'm here to tell you, just change the research. And we're like, no. And what was really funny was, uh, you know, uh, we were polite and he was polite and it was like not confrontational, but it was pretty clear we had different objectives. As we're saying, as he's leaving, we're saying goodbye to him. We said, you know, out of curiosity, did you ever, we, we sent, here's all the stuff we sent. Did you ever, did you ever get that? And then he, he said this, he said, oh, we only respond to sales or marketing inquiries. We never respond to security inquiries. And I was like, oh man, that's, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I have some good news on this front. So I'm, I'm sorry about your story, man. It, 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 it sucks. But I have, for example, I have four nice stories. So the very four recent cases with us changed actually, I mean, not to brag because, you know, it was their decision. It was their merit. They told us that because of us, they changed. They actually changed the policy. They have a security contact on their website now. They manage 24-7. They've changed policy. They, one of the companies actually hired the guy with security. So they have changed stuff. For, on four recent, recent cases with us, I can, after the call, I can give you the, the, the actual papers that are going to be published. And because some of them are still pending on them pushing the updates to the customers. And they actually said that we, we felt very good about it. You know, we felt awesome because we managed to make a change and they are a better company because of us. And we felt it like that, you know? So it felt like what, what we did, we did the right thing. We did a nice thing. So yeah, we, we do have some success stories as well. That's great. What a good note for us to uh, sort of end on as we're running out of time here. You know, as we close up, is there any last parting wisdom or anything we didn't cover on this really important topic that you wish we had that you want to leave our audience with? The first thing that I've learned when I started the Bug Bounty program, and it's one of the things that many people in the security industry, especially on the defensive side, learn, is how little I know. <laughs> Before we started it, we obviously try to cover all the bases, patch all the things, run our own scanner, have our own bad guys, you know, have a, have a go at all the things, you know, we hacked all the things, we patched all the things, we closed all the gaps, we closed all the vulnerabilities. And oh my God, that first week, we were like, wow. So 
So never believe that you've closed all the gaps. Never believe that you've patched all the things. The creativity of millions of security researchers is going to be, don't have the audacity to believe that your small, minuscule, puny, 12 people red team is going to compare with the imagination of a few, like maybe not millions, but a few hundred thousand insanely brilliant security researchers. Oh, I, I love it. I love it. It's, it's always so fun to talk to another member of the security research community. We certainly have overlapping passion and love for, for the community. So, uh, Jay, thank you so much for spending some time with us and sharing all this wisdom. Anytime, man. It's a pleasure, always. Awesome. To learn more about what Jay is up to or to request to appear on the podcast yourself, just head over to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.